you could be randomly dropped down at any time in history, anywhere on the planet, into any culture, and although you wouldn't necessarily be able to understand the language, the customs, or how to work the toilet, you'd still be able to recognize the sound of laughter. Laughter is a universal language, and it's an old one. Even chimpanzees laugh when they're being tickled. According to Dr. Janet Gibson, professor of cognitive psychology at Grinnell College, laughter evolved in humans as a communication signal. It meant everything was okay. All threats were, for the time being, at bay, and we could relax in the comfort of our group. As we evolved, our brains kept these connections. While we might not all find the same things funny, we do understand the universal language of laughter. And a lot of us like to laugh at each other. I don't know when we started laughing at one another's expense, playing pranks on one another, carrying out practical jokes, but I have found one example that's just shy of 1,500 years old. Today, I want to share three historic pranks with you. The first is a bit catty, although undeniably genius. The second involves a writer, an unwitting astronomer, and a hoax that really took off. The third comes down to three guys and a $10 bet, and shows us what happens when we don't think things through all the way. So join me as we turn back the pages to examine some of history's most memorable pranks. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. For our first prank, we're traveling all the way back to 532 CE, or thereabouts. There's something that hasn't changed much from then until now, and that's that sometimes you have to put up with an annoying neighbor. Anthemius of Trollis was a Greek architect and mathematician. He's remembered for a few things like repairing the flood defenses of Darus, a fortress in Mesopotamia for Emperor Justinian I, for his writings on ellipses, and especially for being one of the main architects involved in building the Hagia Sophia. The Hagia Sophia is a masterpiece of architecture. According to its own website, it's considered the embodiment of Byzantine architecture, for centuries, it was the largest Eastern Roman church in Istanbul. Of course, back then, Istanbul was still called Constantinople. It was built over a period of five years, between 532 and 537, which was fast, especially considering its size. The Hagia Sophia, which means divine wisdom, has two levels and a huge dome with 40 windows situated beneath it. They capture the sunlight in such a way that the sun's rays shine down all the way to the floor, provoking a sense of awe in anyone standing inside. It's about 200,000 square feet and 182 feet tall. That's a little over 55 meters. In its almost 1,500 years of history, it's seen some ups and downs. 
Its dome collapsed only a couple decades after it was constructed, probably due to some earthquakes. It was sacked in 1204 by the Venetians and the Crusaders of the Fourth Crusade. In 1453, Constantinople fell to the armies of Mehmed II, Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, and the Hagia Sophia was converted into a mosque. In 1934, it was turned into a museum. In 1985, it became a UNESCO World Heritage Site. In 2020, Turkey's Council of State annulled the 1934 decision to establish it as a museum and reinstated it as a mosque, though as of right now, it is still open to tourists during non-prayer hours. It is one of the most popular tourist destinations in all of Turkey. The Hagia Sophia is a big reason as to why we remember Anthemius, mathematician and architect. But it's not the only reason. Anthemius is also remembered for his pranks, specifically those he allegedly carried out against his rival, a man named Zeno, or in some sources, Zenon. We don't know a lot about Zeno. Most sources I found said he was Anthemius's neighbor, some said a rival, one said an orator that bested him in litigation. Mostly, all we have on Zeno is that he existed in the 4th century and he annoyed Anthemius. I kept thinking about that while I was researching this. What luck to have your name remembered for 1500 years, but the only thing anyone really knows about you is that you annoyed a genius that really knew how to hold on to a grudge. The exact reason for the feud may be lost, but if the Justinian writer who wrote their account in the 500s can be believed, Anthemius's retaliation was truly a prank for the ages. Anthemius decided the best way to get back at Zeno was to make him believe his house was about to be demolished by an earthquake. The architect supposedly set up several boilers full of water in his house and connected them to a hose which he then fed into a small hole leading into Zeno's cellar. Anthemius then lit fires beneath the boilers, and the massive amount of steam produced by the boilers flowed through with such force into Zeno's cellar that his entire house shook and heaved as if it were caught in a great earthquake. It's like when you leave a lid on a steaming pot on your stove and it starts hopping and dancing about, only multiplied many times over. Zeno fled from his house, and Athemius was presumably quite pleased with himself. The sources for this story are not great. When it comes to accounts this old, they rarely are. There's one ancient account that has been interpreted several times over by the time it's made its way to us. But I had to share this one with you because it's just catty enough to be believable. If fences make good neighbors, I'm guessing Zeno probably could have used one. I hope, however things went down, that Anthemius and Zeno worked things out. For our next prank, we need to skip ahead several handfuls of centuries and shift our gaze from Zeno's cellar all the way up to the moon. On August 25th, 1835, the first in a series of six articles was published by the New York Sun that would go down in history as one of the biggest pranks ever pulled off by a news outlet. Although this one really crosses the line from prank 
to hoax. The articles were claimed to have been written by astronomer Dr. Andrew Grant, who was working from a brand-new state-of-the-art observatory in Cape Town, South Africa, which was outfitted with a telescope so powerful it could see the surface of the moon as clearly as the naked eye could see anything on our own planet from a mere 100 yards away. The Sun claimed the articles weren't their own, but were reprinted from the Edinburgh Journal of Science. Dr. Grant claimed the famous astronomer Sir John Herschel, who was, in fact, a real famous astronomer and scientist, had just discovered life on the moon. And what a sight he was reported to have seen. Over the course of six articles, Dr. Grant claimed Herschel saw on the moon bipedal beavers, winged humanoids, half-human, half-bat, waterfalls, volcanoes, a, quote, lake of death, raging rivers, lush vegetation, and even a unicorn. There were also moon bison, playful goat-like creatures, long-beaked cranes, huge amethyst crystals, and pyramids, and all of it was wonderfully, clearly observable. Not only had Herschel discovered all of this on the moon, he also, according to Grant, quote, has solved or corrected nearly every leading problem of mathematical astronomy, unquote. All of this was untrue. It was completely fabricated. Dr. Grant wasn't even a real person. Dr. John Herschel was real, but had no idea his name and reputation were being used in a newspaper hoax an ocean away. Likewise, the Edinburgh Journal of Science, who the New York Sun was claiming was the original publisher of these articles, was a real scientific journal, but had nothing to do with this hoax. The name-dropping of a real scientist, a real scientific journal, and the real location of an actual observatory were all a clever manipulation by reporter Richard Adams Locke, who used the credentials of others to make his ruse more believable. Locke was a Cambridge-educated writer and an editor for The Sun. The New York Sun was a penny paper. According to an article from The New Yorker, before the 1830s, most newspapers sold for six cents and were sponsored mostly by political parties. Penny papers, which relied on ads and circulation, started popping up in the 1830s, selling issues for just one cent. These papers, which had the working class in mind as a target audience, were widely popular. Before printing the story about Herschel finding life on the moon, the Sun, according to Britannica, circulated around 8,000 papers a day. After printing the false accounts, the Sun sold around 20,000 papers a day, more than doubling its output. And a lot of people believed everything in those articles was true, even the unicorn. Religious groups started making plans for missionary work on the moon. Other newspapers began reporting on the discovery. A committee of Yale scientists traveled to New York in search of the Edinburgh Journal articles. Readership for the Sun increased dramatically, and the public, by and large, was duped. There were skeptics who did not believe the articles, including the legendary Edgar Allan Poe. 
Poe wrote about the event, saying, quote, Not one person in ten discredited it. A professor of mathematics in a Virginian college told me seriously that he had no doubt of the truth of the whole affair. Unquote. Poe was dismayed about the false articles not only because so many people believed them, but also because he believed the hoax had been a plagiarism of a story of his, one in which a man traveled to the moon in a hot air balloon. Eventually, the sensationalism died down, and the hoax was revealed to be a hoax. But what was editor Richard Locke's motivation for lying to his readers? Historians believe his motivations were probably twofold. One was the circulation of more papers. He wanted to create a sensational story to make more money for the sun. If that was his motivation, then he hit the nail on the head. He certainly accomplished that. He substantially increased the number of papers sold, and the sun continued to be more successful after his prank, even after the truth came out. Two, this was satire. Locke wanted to poke fun at the many speculations about extraterrestrial life on the moon that were bouncing around at the time, specifically those of Reverend Thomas Dick, a popular Christian writer who claimed in his best-selling books that he'd done some math, I'm trying to insert air quotes around the word math with my voice, proving there were 4.2 billion inhabitants on the moon alone. It's unclear if Locke knew the story would be so widely believed. Some have also speculated as to whether he worked alone on the story, though there seems to be no solid evidence that anyone else helped him fabricate the lie. Apparently, Sir John Herschel, the real astronomer who had been unwittingly used to give the fake story the illusion of credibility, was actually amused about the whole thing. That was until people kept asking him questions about all the life he saw on the moon. After that, he called the articles incoherent ravings. I wonder what he would have thought about social media. The story reminds us of the importance of thinking critically and ensuring we're receiving information from reliable sources backed by credible scientific data. Because there will always be someone trying to sell you a unicorn on the moon. It was July 8th, 1953, a hot summer night near Atlanta, Georgia, on a lonely stretch of Highway 78. There were three men, all roommates, driving together in a pickup truck. One was Edward Waters, a 28-year-old barber, Thomas Wilson, a 20-year-old barber, and Arnold Payne, a 19-year-old butcher. Everyone called him Buddy. The three of them were about to pull off a prank that would go down in the annals of weird history. Some days before the events that were about to transpire, Edward Waters, while playing a card game, had taken a $10 bet. He claimed he could get his picture in the papers. Ten U.S. dollars back then equates to around $104 today. Waters wanted to win that bet. So he started telling anyone who would listen to him that he'd recently seen some flying saucers. 
Sometimes, people would tell him they'd seen them too. By 1953, UFOs had already been in the news for years. According to the Washington Post, in 1948, great balls of fire were reported in the skies nearby between Atlanta and Augusta. The following year, a Valdosta woman claimed she saw a red flying saucer hovering in the air. And in the early 1950s, some pilots at the Atlanta Municipal Airport said they'd seen an aluminum-covered disc rise into the sky. Whether you had a credible or non-credible account, it seemed to Waters that, if you wanted some press, a good UFO story was the way to go. Waters himself had not seen any UFOs, but he knew others claimed they had, and he wanted to ride the UFO wave in order to get himself into the newspapers to win that $10 bet. So he talked his two roommates into concocting a story. This is an example of what happens when a prank goes too far. Waters would come to regret what he and his friends were about to do. I'll expand on that later. This is the story he and his roommates initially told to the police and the news reporters. The three young men said they'd been out honky-tonking. For my European listeners, that means they were out drinking, probably dancing to country music, and having a night out at one or more local bars. However, Waters, who was driving, swore that each of them had only had one beer. And that might just be the most unbelievable part of this whole story. Around midnight, they were driving down Highway 78. Waters was driving at around 50 miles per hour. Just as the truck crested a small hill, his two passengers spotted a red object. It was waist-high and half as wide as the road. As they approached, they clearly saw it was a flying saucer parked right there on the highway. The witnesses said they saw three or four little creatures running just like little men, scrambling to get to their craft. The two passengers screamed for Waters to hit the brakes, but it was too late. Waters said he heard no sounds except for a pop when he accidentally hit one of the creatures with his truck. The other little creatures got into their craft and flew away before any other witnesses could confirm their story. Now, Waters claimed he had the body of a man from outer space. Several other cars eventually pulled up behind the truck, including one occupied by two Cobb County police officers. The story seemed out of this world, but there was a burnt circle in the middle of the road where the three men said they'd seen a craft, and there was a small, greenish, strange-looking creature dead in front of Waters' truck. Somehow, Waters was allowed to keep the body, which was not taken by the police as evidence, and he put it in his refrigerator. He said he planned on displaying it in his barbershop. According to a front-page article from the Miami News in 1953, authorities eventually seized the body, and it was taken to Dr. W.A. Mickle, a professor of anatomy at Emory University, who confirmed it was the body of a rhesus monkey. When a reporter asked him if it could have come from outer space, he replied, quote, If it did, they don't have anything new out there. Immediately after this story broke out, the three roommates realized they were in over their heads. The police had filed a report, 
Reporters were everywhere. According to an article from Gizmodo, hundreds of citizens began calling in after this fake report came out, saying they too had seen something in the sky that night. The Air Force was even called. It took one day for the three roommates to admit that what they had done had been a prank to get Waters' picture into the newspapers. This is what actually happened. Waters purchased a four-pound Reese's monkey from an Atlanta pet store. Things are not going to end well for this animal. These three men do kill this monkey. So please skip the next few minutes if that's something that's going to be triggering for you. The last thing I want to do with this podcast is ruin someone's day by telling these stories. According to the Washington Post, Waters paid $50 for the monkey and another $4 for the cashier to keep quiet about the purchase. This was already an expensive investment for a $10 bet. So I think either Waters believed he would make money by selling or displaying the body of this poor animal in his barbershop, or the bet wasn't about the money. After taking the animal back to their apartment, the three men anesthetized it and hit it over the head with a bottle, killing it. They used hair remover on it, which they purchased from a local drugstore, and dipped it in green food coloring. They then drove out to Highway 78, found a spot they thought would work best for their lie, and used a blowtorch to burn a circle into the pavement. They placed the body of the monkey near the scorch marks in front of their truck, and waited. When two officers eventually pulled up only minutes later, they told the story they had all agreed upon, and everything blew up to proportions they hadn't anticipated. Shirley Brown, one of the officers who happened upon the scene that night, said, quote, If we had been five minutes earlier, we'd have caught him in the act. When word got out that this had all been a cruel prank, the people of Atlanta were not happy they had been duped. Angry letters to local papers flooded in. One writer suggested Waters himself be forcefully shaved, another that he should be prosecuted for animal cruelty. In the end, Waters was fined $40 for violating a Georgia health and sanitation law for dumping a carcass on a highway. I couldn't find that anything happened to his roommates. That $40 plus the $54 the monkey had cost him brought the total cost of this prank to $94, which equates to around $1,012 today. As for the $10 bet, Waters did get his picture in the paper, under the headline, Mars Man, Nothing But a Monkey. After the prank, Waters was hassled so much that he had to move his barbershop out of Atlanta. He was quoted later as saying, How would you like to be known as the Monkey Man? It got to be a big joke, you know, but jokes can go too far. Unquote. As for the monkey, it is now in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation's mini-museum. The state's crime lab lobby has several displays. The monkey from Mars, as it's come to be known, is one of them. A reminder that we should try and think things all the way through before we decide to monkey around. Thank you so much for listening today and choosing this independent podcast out of the, I think it's something like two million other podcasts out there now. 
I genuinely appreciate that you spent time with me today. So seriously, thank you. I hope you enjoyed hearing about some of history's most memorable pranks, even though that last one got a bit sad. And if you ever make it to the Hagia Sophia and you're appreciating the incredible architectural beauty, just think about how all that magnificence came from the same mind as the guy who held such a grudge he made his neighbor think he was about to die in a horrible earthquake. And then send me a postcard so I can cherish it forever. Anyway, I'll be back again, as always, in three weeks with more history for you. Until then, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.